I am excited we are back again tonight in the book of Galatians and we are asking the question, how do you change attitudes or mindsets or character issues that you do not want to have a part of your life? This last week I showed 16 different images of different types of things that most of us would say we hope would never describe us. And some of the things that were listed last week were things like procrastination, or laziness, envy, impatience, lying, road rage, tardiness, bad attitudes, cheating, doubt, greed, pessimism, addiction, regret, you, you name it, just kind of keeps going down that list. It, it doesn't really matter who you are. You could be a Christian or not be a Christian, spiritual, not spiritual, young, old, whatever it might be. We hope that those things don't describe our life. And if they do describe us today, we hope that those same things would not describe our life tomorrow or next month or maybe next year. But for many people, the things that I just mentioned have become so ingrained, they've been running a cycle of that type of sin or that attitude or that issue for so long that they almost don't even know what life would be like if that were not a part of their life. And they've gone through any number of steps. They've gone to accountability partners. They've heard if you read your Bible and you pray more, then it'll take care of those things. They have gotten more involved in biblical community, knowing that community is a part of iron sharpening iron. And, and they've tried any number of things, and maybe they've tried it for decades, and those same issues are still very present in their life. They hate the problem. They see the problem. They get upset about the problem. Sometimes they feel powerless to change the problem. If that describes you in any way, if you've all but given up, I've got good news for you tonight. God specializes in difficult situations. And often you will find God allows us to get to the end of ourselves so that we learn how to fully depend upon him. Whenever God is the one doing the work, you'll begin to notice that God makes changes at a character level, not a behavior modification level. People are very interested in, I want to make sure your outside behavior changes. But you can change an outside behavior, and if the character did not change on the inside, you will find that the same issues of the flesh will simply pop up in another area. So tonight, we're going to finish the second part of a message we began this last week, talking about walking by the Spirit. How is it that God brings about a true work of transformation in the lives of believers? I invite you to go back with me again, Galatians chapter number 5. Galatians 5, we will be in verses 16 through 26. Now, for the sake of time and so that I can pull out some other parts of this text, I'm not going to go back and reread the text. Instead, I'm going to have a word of prayer. I'll give a brief recap of what we covered this last week, but then we're going to be picking up in a certain section here and working our way back through the rest of the text. So let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask this evening once again that your spirit guide us in truth. God, we're praying tonight for those issues, and it might be that some people immediately have issues that have been brought to mind, things that have been a part of their concern for years. And others might be sitting here tonight saying, that doesn't even describe me. God, we know that on this side of heaven, 
all of us have a part and a work of sanctification that's still going on. God, would you personalize this message tonight for each of us? In Jesus' name, amen. So from Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, all the way through the rest of the book of Galatians, the focus is on this ongoing struggle between the flesh and the spirit. Now, if you happen to be like me and you like to write or highlight sometimes in your Bible, I would encourage you to get two different color highlighters, pick one for the flesh and one for the spirit, and starting in chapter 5, work your way through the rest of this book, highlighting each of those words in their corresponding color. The, the reason I say it's important to do something like that is you will very quickly see how themes and patterns jump out of the pages of Scripture. You will see this idea of flesh and spirit going all the way through the rest of Galatians. Now, we've covered what the flesh is. The flesh describes the remnants of our former sin nature. It is the habits, the traits, and the tendencies that we developed while living under a sin nature. That is, at our physical birth, everyone is born with a sin nature. At our spiritual birth, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are born again, John chapter 3, verse 3, and you are given God's nature, Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. Now, that does not mean that Christians no longer sin, have bad attitudes, do stupid things. All of that is still in the mix. Lord willing, it's going to become less and less the further you walk with Jesus. And by the way, uh, walking further with Jesus is not about the number of years. You could be saved for 30 years and still be a one-year-old believer. It's about maturity in Christ. That's one of the most exciting things about being around a new believer. Is so many times, it's fresh for them. It's exciting for them. They're, they're showing you what they're learning. They're excited about what God is teaching. I think it's so important that every church has new believers in it to remind the old believers about what it is that God saved us from. Amen. That wasn't a part of my notes, but you can have it anyway. So the issue is not about the fact that a Christian no longer sins. The issue comes back to why does a Christian sin and does a Christian have to continue to sin? So let me kind of summarize that as best I can. We sin because of the flesh. That's the why. But we don't have to obey the desires of the flesh. That's the good news. At the cross, the penalty of sin was paid and the power of sin was broken. Jesus has already done that on our behalf. So I want you to think for just a moment about this from the perspective of why does someone continue to sin? How is the flesh working into this? Well, think for a moment about maybe an intellectually gifted child who grows up in an abusive home. This child's smart. The child can excel academically. But from the time they're really, really young, they're told, you're stupid. You're doing everything wrong. You'll never amount to anything. That child living in that environment will begin to believe the lies that are told about them. And oftentimes you will find that child will live down to the expectations that have been placed upon them. At the same time, put that same child in the classroom of a teacher who is going to pull out the best of their students. 
Put that child in a classroom of a teacher who wants to foster gifting and encourage a child and to go through and to praise the things that they're doing well. And you'll often find that that same child will begin to excel academically based upon the teacher that they've been with. And that is that teacher begins to counteract the lies with truth. They bring in encouragement and hope and that child can begin to excel. Now here's the reality. The child was always smart. The child always had the ability. Here's the thing. They weren't getting bad grades because they didn't have the ability to get good grades. They were getting bad grades because they were mentally conditioned to underachieve. Take that idea back into this text. Satan has been referred to in Scripture as the accuser of the brethren. Satan is going to constantly lie to us. He is going to constantly hold our previous life, our previous sins, our patterns of sin over our head and say, you'll never be able to walk in righteousness. You'll never be able to get this right. You will always be a loser in this. You've always fallen in this area. You always will fall in this area. He's going to keep bringing those things up again and again and again. And the issue is going to be one of, does the believer believe the reality? of what God has declared to be true about them. This is what scripture says about a born-again believer. You are completely holy. You are completely forgiven. You are positionally righteous in Christ. Jesus is with you. He is in you and nothing can separate you from the love of God. When we sin, it's not because we don't have the ability to walk in righteousness. We sin because we have been mentally conditioned to live down to the accusations of the enemy. It's a mind game at this point. We have to begin to see ourselves as God sees us. We have to believe what God has declared to be true about us. We have to reprogram the way that we are thinking. So this last week, I gave one big truth, and here it is again. When you walk by the Spirit, you do not carry out the desires of the flesh. So what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? It's simply this, we walk by the Spirit when we live under His direction, that is, as we are led by Him and as we obey Him, and we live by His power. That is, we're not relying upon ourselves, but rather we are trusting Him. Walk, if you'll remember, is a continuous action. It's not that we are to do this occasionally or when it's convenient or just when we're around our Christian friends. We are to walk by the Spirit as a habitual part of our life. It is to be our normal default position. So that now brings us to our new material. Here's the next point. When you walk by the Spirit, you do not need a list of rules for every situation. When you walk by the Spirit... You do not need a list of rules for every situation. Look at what it says in verse number 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So I've got a couple of questions that I want to kind of open this up with. Is it okay for a Christian to give money or food or help to a homeless person today and not give money, food, or help to a homeless person tomorrow? Is it okay for a Christian 
to say no to a service opportunity in the church, even if there's a lot of need that's there, and say yes to another service opportunity? Is it okay for a Christian to maybe go to the movies occasionally, to listen to music that's not Christian music, to read books that are not Christian books? Is it okay for a believer to do those types of things? There's literally tens of thousands of daily decisions that believers are working through that are not what you would call specifically addressed in the Bible. It's not that there is a passage, you know, chapter and verse to say, here's what you do in this particular moment. So how do you know what to do? If you are walking by the Spirit, if you're being led by the Spirit, you don't need a list of rules for every situation that you're going to encounter. So how do you know what it is that the Spirit of God is leading you to do? Well, one of the best explanations I've ever found for this was in a book by Gary Frazen entitled Decision Making and the Will of God. He gave four guiding principles. These are in your notes. These are ones that I've gone back to multiple times over the years, and they're very simple, but here's the first. It's the principle of obedience. Where God commands, we must obey, period. If it's in the Word of God, that's an obedience issue right there. The Word of God is God's revelation of himself to humanity. So if you're wondering what God's position is on a certain topic and God addresses it, you see this is his will, this is his way, this is his desire, this is his perspective on that. It's right there in the word. So in that situation, to walk by the Spirit is to walk in obedience to what the word of God clearly says. That is the principle of obedience. Now here's the next principle. It's called the principle of freedom. Where there is no command, God gives us freedom and responsibility to choose. Did you know there are believers who are so concerned that they don't offend God or mess anything up that every decision now becomes a point of paralysis or becomes a point of panic? They, they don't know what to do about daily decisions. They, they want to take everything to God, but they begin to wonder, like, God, is, is okay for me to wear this outfit or that outfit? Should I get a salad or a steak? Should I have a four-day vacation or a five-day vacation? And, and I mean, they're, they're concerned and, and they're, they're focused and they want to do everything right, but it leads them to a place they're so afraid of making the wrong decision that all of a sudden they just get paralyzed in fear. God did not give you the spirit of fear. There's something about that in Scripture. God desires for his people to know his will, to walk in obedience with his spirit. So here's the next one. It's the principle of wisdom. Where there is no command, God gives us wisdom to choose. We are studying the book of James on Sunday morning. It is one of the three wisdom books that's found in our Bible, entirely dedicated to the concept of wisdom. As we mature in our walk with God, as we grow in our wisdom, we will find that many things are permissible, permissible, that is, they're not sinful, they're not unethical, they're not immoral, they're just not wise. When you ask the question, is it wise, that will eliminate a whole lot of stupid decisions in your life. You will find it is unbelievably easy to walk by the Spirit if you ask that question up front. 
if you ask wise counsel, like what do you see about it? You'll begin to see a little bit more of what it looks like to walk in wisdom. If you stop and you just say, God, help me to see this situation from multiple angles, you'll also find that he gives you wisdom to see it from multiple angles. And then here's the final principle. It's called the principle of humble trust. When we have chosen what is moral and wise, we must trust the sovereign God to work all details together for good. We have to trust that God desires the best for our life more than we desire what is best for our life. We have to trust that when we are walking in obedience with God's word, when we are asking what is wise and asking the spirit of God to lead us and asking for godly counsel around us, when we are submitting ourselves to the process saying, Lord, would you lead me? When God prompts, when he directs, we walk forward in humble trust that it is his way, it is his path. Now, somebody might say, Paul, I don't know what that looks like. Let me give you a great illustration from my life that impacts your life. Tell me the verse in the Bible that says, Paul Godhart, you are to be the senior pastor of Sherwood Baptist Church. I was not seeking another position. I was not thinking our life was going to change. But God was working things behind the scenes. And as we submitted to a process of prayer and discernment and seeking wisdom and going to the word, here's what you find. God began to align his word and align his will and align counsel and align prayer and align circumstances. And all of a sudden, in that moment, did I know how things were going to work out? By the way, one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life is resign our position in Las Vegas before you all voted on me coming out here. Because I'm like, you, you can't unring that bell after that's over with. I was like, Lord, if this is not you, I'm going to be working at Home Depot this next week. Okay, here, here's one of those beautiful things. There's this story about a young boy who would go out along a river, and he was watching as these big, massive ships would come down in this river and each one would go through the center of the river and it would be daylight, it'd be dark. And he was wondering, why do these things never hit the ground? Why don't they run ashore somewhere? And he talked to a guy who was a captain of one of those ships. And he said, I want you to look out into the center of the channel. And he said, you'll notice there's buoys with lights all the way through. He said, when you look out and all the lights are separated, he says, you're not in the center. He says, when they all start to line up, you know you're in the middle of the channel. When it comes to believers, when God's word, when prayer, when circumstances, all are starting to line up, what do you do? You step out in humble trust and say, God, as best I know how, I'm trusting that this way is right. It's the principle of humble trust. When we follow those principles that have been outlined by phrase, and it helps us choose well while depending upon God. So let me pause here and also give another part of that. It's true that when you walk by the Spirit, you do not have to have a list of rules for every situation. But let me give the other part. It's equally true when the Spirit of God directs you and you say no, that's called disobedience. Disobedience. 
It might be the Spirit of God prompts you to give to five homeless people this week, and you know you're supposed to. Have you all ever had those moments where you're in there, and all of a sudden you don't do what you're supposed to do, and like instantly you're walking away, and it's like God says, you just missed that. And you're like, I did. I know I did. Those are moments that are obedience moments. It's being led by the Spirit. So when you walk by the Spirit, you don't have to have a list of rules for every situation. We can trust Him, and when we do that, God lives through us. That leads us into this next point. When you walk by the Spirit, the Spirit lives through you, verses 22 and 23. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, this is going to be very simple gardening, farming talk for just a moment. I think everybody can be on the same page. Here it is. Orange trees produce oranges. Apple trees produce apples. Tomato plants produce tomatoes. Spirit-filled people produce the fruit of the Spirit. It is the natural outflow of being in right relationship with God. When he lives through you, he lives his will, he lives his desire, he lives his power through your life. Now this word fruit is singular. Let me just say there's been debate on this particular verse over the years, two different camps, and that is it's taught by some that the fruit of the Spirit is love, just love, and all of the other words are expressions of love. If that's the case, it would seem to fit with the emphasis placed on love found in verse number 14. It's also taught that even though the fruit of the Spirit is singular, there are nine characteristics that come with that fruit, love simply being one of those nine. Now, that interpretation also is plausible. Either way you look at it, these nine words provide a description of what it looks like when the Spirit of God is living through that person. Now, this is a great list, not only for Christian maturity, it's also a great list for those people who question their salvation. They're wondering, did did I really mean it? Do I really have the Spirit of God living in me? It should be every believer can look at this list and say, this is what it looks like when the Holy Spirit is dwelling and living through an individual. So, what are these traits? We're going to go through them very quickly. There is love, that is agape love is a supreme expression of Christian living. As you've heard many times before, this is a love that only God can generate. This is a form of love that most reflects personal choice, referring not simply to pleasant emotions or good feelings, but rather to a willing, self-giving service. Agape love is a deliberate expression made possible only by God. There's also joy. Uh, This is a feeling of joy, euphoria, happiness that is based on spiritual realities. Joy is this deep down sense of well-being that abides in the believer because the believer knows that they are in right relationship with God. Has nothing to do with favorable circumstances. It is God's gift to believers. A believer can have incredible joy even in difficult circumstances. Then there's the word peace. It means more tranquility of heart that comes from knowing that our lives 
are in God's hands. Uh, just like joy, this is also a word that has nothing to do with your circumstances or context. has everything to do with knowing who holds your life, who holds your future, and who it is that you are in relationship with. Then there's patience, everybody's favorite word on this list. It is actually not a word used of patience in relation to things or events, but with people. That makes us like the word even less. Because sometimes life is easier if people don't keep messing it up. And this is a patience with people. Then there's kindness. It relates to a tender concern for others. It's the desire of the believer to treat others gently and just as the Lord treats them. Then there's goodness. It has to do with moral and spiritual excellence that is also known by active kindness. Then there's faithfulness. This is a word that is used of trustworthiness. It's a characteristic of people who are reliable. Then there's gentleness, one of the most under stated words it's found in scripture in the new testament there's three main meanings of this word gentleness it, it means submissiveness to the will of god found over in matthew 5 it speaks of a teachable spirit over in james 121 and it also means being considerate first corinthians chapter 4 verse 21 aristotle defined gentleness as the midpoint between excessive anger and excessive angerlessness. I think he made up a word right there. It describes a person who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. And then there's the word self-control. It's self-mastery or the ability to restrain one's passions and appetites. So the fruit of the Spirit is produced as we yield to the Spirit. When we come under the Spirit's direction and we live by the Spirit's power, these are the traits that the Spirit of God lives through us. Now, that doesn't mean that believers are going to be perfect in all of these. But all of these will be present in a believer's life. And by the grace of God and over time and through Christian maturity, they should grow over time. It should be that God continues to bring these out as a person is walking in right relationship with him. When the Spirit produces fruit, the Christian is not conscious of their spirituality. This is so important. When it is your flesh that is trying to make yourself spiritual, not only are you conscious of everything, you want everybody else to be conscious of what just happened. When the Spirit of God's doing the work, that's not even a part of your mindset. You're just as amazed as your friend by the work that God just did in your life. You're like, I can't believe it either. It's awesome. Okay? The world would be a much better place if these characteristics were represented in every believer. Uh, by the way, did you notice the fact that in verses 22 and 23 it says, against such things there is no law? It's interesting to me that not only is there nothing in God's law that forbids these characteristics, there's also nothing in the laws of the world that would forbid these characteristics. Think of that list. Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The world would be a much better place if those were the characteristics being lived 
true people. So let's now go on to our next piece. That is when you walk by the Spirit, there is no competition with other believers. 24 through 26. It says, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Now let's start with the first phrase. That one's probably a little bit trickier at this point. For Christians, the sin nature was dealt with. It died with Christ on the cross. Galatians 2, Colossians 3, Romans 7, very clear in Scripture. So what does this mean when it says, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh? Isn't that the exact thing that we're saying is still alive? It's saying they've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Well, let's take a moment to unpack this. And Lord willing, by the time we're done, we'll be able to see that there's not a contradiction here, but rather there's a deeper understanding of it. That is, when Jesus died on the cross... He not only paid the penalty of our sin, he also broke the power of sin. Sin no longer controls the believer. As a Christian, we cannot say, we do not have the excuse of, there's nothing I can do about this. I'm helpless. I can't change. I, I have this sinful need. It's always been there. I'm always going to be bound by this. The Christian cannot say that biblically. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you, but just what is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. If you look in verse number 16 of chapter 5, it reminds us, when we walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So Romans 6 describes this mindset. Listen to what it says. Even so, consider yourselves. If you'll remember in James this morning, it started with consider it all joy. That is, reflect upon it. Think upon this. This word, it also means reckon it. That is, believe what it is saying. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness for God. Listen to this phrase. For sin shall not be a master over you, but you are not under law, but under grace. Here's what that means. We have to believe what God has declared to be true about us. Prior to Christ, sin defeated us, it dominated us, it destroyed us, and it defiled us. We were powerless against the impulses of sin. On our best day, we might be able to white-knuckle our way through momentary change. But when we got saved... When the Spirit of God now came to indwell the believer, it is now His power in His life being lived through us. When you repented of your sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ, He forgave your sin debt, past, 
present, and future. He justified you before God, and then he entrusted our sanctification to the Holy Spirit. We are no longer at sin's mercy. We are under God's control. Because of that, we can walk in righteousness. Not because of us, because of him. Not because of what we do in our discipline, but what the Spirit of God does as we abide in Christ. If you'll notice in verse 16, we talked about the word walk. It speaks of habitual behavior. There's also another walk that's found in verse 25. This has a different nuance. It is to learn to walk by trial and error. That's such good news I can hardly stand myself. Here's the reason. God knows that as a believer learning to walk by the Spirit, it's like a person learning to breathe underwater. It doesn't come naturally. You choke and you mess up and you, you, you falter back and forth. There's some days you walk by the Spirit and you're like, woohoo, that's great, I'm doing wonderful. And pride hits and all of a sudden you fall back down the next day. And then there's other days that you're like, I don't even know if I'm a Christian anymore. When it says this walk, it's trial and error. Here's what's going to happen. There's going to be days that you submit to the Spirit. God is living through you. Victory's coming through. It's wonderful. And there's days that you mess up. But even on the days you mess up, His grace is still sufficient. Your position in Christ did not change because you messed up. He does not love you any less when you mess up, and He doesn't love you any more when you do what is right. Your position is absolutely firm. So you know what that allows us to do? That allows us to say, God, thank you for what you've done for me. I submit myself to you again today. Lord, would you live your perfect life and will through me? Amen. That's freedom. Amen. That's joy. That's happiness. That's a spirit-filled, spirit-led life. It also goes on to say, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. When we walk by the Spirit, it is not a reason to become boastful. It is not a competition with other believers. It's also important for us to remember that everyone struggles with different things. Here's why that's so important. Some people struggle with issues that are openly seen, therefore openly criticized. Addictions, outbursts of anger, tardiness, pessimism, things like that. Other people struggle with things that are inwardly destructive and therefore they're privately held. Many people might not even know it's a struggle in your life. It might be a struggle with pride or jealousy or manipulation or regret or fear. Those things are also a part of the redemptive work that God is doing. The issue for the believer is never, my sins are better than your sins. Your sins are worse than mine. It, it, it's not that I look out at somebody else and I look and say, well, we've both been Christians for 25 years. I should be further along than what I am right now. You're not in competition with anybody else. You are not my standard. I am not your standard. Jesus is the only standard. 
We are not in competition. When we walk by the Spirit, we come under His direction and we live by His power. It is an ongoing walk that is that of trial and error. There's going to be times that we walk in victory, times that we find ourselves in defeat, but the same grace of God will sustain us with both because it is God living His life through us. There is never a time to become prideful, envious, are challenging to other believers. God has not established a culture of competition within the church. He has established a community of support. We are those who have been sinners saved by grace and now on this redemptive walk with God, learning day by day, moment by moment, situation by situation, what it looks like to walk in freedom. How do you change attitudes, mindsets, and character issues you do not want to have a part of your life? Just place your faith that the same God who saved you will sanctify you. Submit yourself before him. Trust that he is the one who is beginning the work and completing the work. It's not that we do nothing, just sit there and say, God, one day I'll wake up completely sanctified. It is that when we walk by the Spirit and we obey the promptings of God, it's God bringing the transformation in us. And you look back over time and you say, you know what? I'm not where I want to be or where God will have me one day, but praise the Lord, I can see progress. I can see the fruit of the Spirit is growing piece by piece by piece. God's plan is not going to be a plan that's going to weigh us down with burdens and unrealistic expectations. He's saying, I just simply want you to trust me. Trust that the one who saved you is also going to be the one to sanctify you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the truths that it contains. Thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. Thank you for the fact that when you saved us, God, you forgave our sin debt. You're not asking us to perform in order to now show you how much we're grateful. You're asking us to submit and to trust you to complete the work that you began in us. God, thank you for the freedom we have in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Next week, we start chapter 6. Amen. Have a great night.